The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Like Bob has already said, we're going to finish up this two-week series on transgenderism. A challenging topic, but one we have to address. As pastors, we don't have a choice. There are things we'd maybe like to skip over, but we can't. And this is one of those cultural issues we need to give our utmost attention to, biblically speaking. Last week, we looked at how Scripture calls Christians in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to have our minds renewed, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we might discern everything in our personal and public experience, that which is good and right and wholesome and pleasing to the Lord. That's our calling as Christians, a significant part of our calling. And we need to consider this particular cultural moment in that light. We want to develop a spiritual intuition, you might say, to be able to discern what is truly pleasing to the Lord, not only in my life, but in the greater culture. And so this week, what I want to do is I want to look specifically at the goodness of God's design of human beings in His image as male and female, going into Scripture, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, to consider that issue. One of the most important components of a Christian worldview is the Christian or the biblical view of man, a biblical anthropology, you might say. What is God's view of man? What is our nature? What is our purpose? Contrary to a neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory, human beings are a direct and distinct creation of God. We're not just another animal species along an evolutionary spectrum. Humans did not come about through a multi-million year process of natural selection. Rather, God distinguished humans from the animals and from every other aspect of the creation when on the sixth day, he created them in his image. This is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Human beings are little images of God. Isn't that remarkable? Just look to the person sitting next to you. That person sitting next to you is God's very image. You want to know that God exists? Just look around the room. His images are everywhere. You, as a human being, are created in God's image. But the implication that we need to draw from this passage is this remarkable ontological reality that Christians are as uh, sorry human beings enjoy a unique status among God's creation as his images out of all the creation only human beings enjoy this u- unique status of being created in his very image it is an ontological reality it has to do with our very being our very personhood we are made in the image of God. And, and it's only a biblical worldview that can provide the grounds for human dignity. Only a Christian worldview enables us to see our nature as humans as made in the image of God and therefore those uh, therefore having inherent value and worth. Only a Christian worldview can lead us to using our bodies in a way that corresponds with created reality. Because we learn in Scripture why God created us, how He created us, and what our natures truly are, and what our bodies are to be used 
for. Only a Christian worldview, only a biblical worldview can provide the grounds for human dignity. But you can't speak of generic humanity. You can't speak of generic human nature in some abstract form because there is no generic human on the planet. You are, as we'll see in the next passage, the passage right after the one we just read, you are an image bearer, but you are either male or female. Look at what he, uh, Moses writes here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you are a human, you are male or you are female. That is the testimony of Genesis chapter 1. God creates man in his own image, and he creates man and woman, male and female. They are both equal in their ontology. And again, I use that word a fair amount here from the pulpit. All that word means is it has to do with their being, their nature. By their very nature, man and woman are equal. The man is not some sort of greater image bearer than the woman, and neither is the woman some sort of greater image bearer than the man. Their natures are the same as image bearers. But they are different in their biological sex, their gender. God has made them that way. The two genders are tied to their respective biological or physical structure. Gender is not distinct from biological sex, so that the man and the woman fit together sexually for the purpose of reproduction. The very body that we have been given is designed specifically to carry out the reproductive task in unique ways. So that the man and the woman have to come together in order to multiply God's images throughout the earth. And that's why God created man and woman. That's why he created marriage. But God didn't create just some sort of function that could fit together sexually. No, he created this man and this woman to fit together in a complementary way so that the woman would fit to the man both emotionally and relationally and respect to all various kinds of roles and skills and gifts and so on. And Genesis 2 explains that situation and how that came about. Genesis chapter 2 is not a separate creation account. It's actually zooming in on day 6 that's outlined in chapter 1 where God gives the broad overview. He created them male and female, and then he goes into chapter 2 to zoom in now to explain exactly what happened, what, what transpired. God creates the man first out of the dust of the ground. He places him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And then something happens. Something, he, Adam notices something. God paraded all the animals in front of him to name them, but not only to name them, but to get Adam to realize that something was amiss. Something was not good. And it was not good for the man to be alone. And so what does God do? Verse 18 of chapter 2. Then God, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or suitable for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had, God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not... A, found a helper fit for him. So God wanted Adam to recognize that your helper, your suitable helper, is not going to come from the animals. Horses are awesome. I like horses. But that's not going to work. It's not going to, that horse isn't going to help me carry out this calling to subdue the earth the way that a suitable helper would. And well, what's this suitable helper going to be? I'm so excited to find out. Well, 
God's going to put Adam to sleep in order to get to work here. So verse 21, the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh with his place, uh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last, right? So he saw all the animals and recognize, hey, this isn't going to work. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What does Adam recognize? First, he is enthralled with the reality that she is the same as him. Namely, her human nature is the same. She's an image bearer. But he is equally enthralled by the fact that she is different. She's different than me. She shall be called Ish. She shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. She is different. She is an image bearer, but she is a woman. And after God creates this woman for Adam, he stands back at the end of the sixth day and says, behold, it is very good. This creation of man and woman in God's image coming together like this, it's very good. God's creation of male and female is very good. In fact, so essential is this, this, uh, this good difference and distinction between image bearers that God would not allow Israel to even entertain the appearance of confusion at this point. God was very careful to maintain this clear and good distinction between the men and the women, between the man and the woman. For example, men and women in Israel could not engage in sexual activity with members of the same sex. That's Leviticus 18.22. Why? Because that would blur and confuse the distinctions between man and woman. Woman created for the man in all the ways that she's created for the man and all the various ways that they go together. So homosexuality could not be allowed in Israel. But also... And as important is the idea or the, the requirement that there could be no participation in cross-dressing. Did you know that? In Israel, you could not participate in cross-dressing. So Deuteronomy 22, 5 says this, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Now, the word abomination isn't used, I mean, it's used a fair amount, but it's reserved for particularly heinous things. And you might be wondering, what's so heinous about putting on a woman's cloak if you're a man? But the, what this brings up is this kind of imagery of, of repulsion. See, God is repulsed when his design for man and woman is twisted because of what he has created is good. His creation of man and woman is truly good and it reflects his own nature. These commands for Israel were not the arbitrary whim of some tribal deity. Nor were they the old-fashioned ideals of an, an oppressive patriarchal society. These rules for God's people in Israel corresponded to and protected the goodness and beauty of God's design of man and woman, who were each created distinct in their God-given biological sex and corresponding gender. And this design is affirmed by Jesus Christ and the writers of the New Testament. These rules protected something beautiful. And good. And God did not want the lines blurred at any point. Why? Because His glory is meant to shine through this distinction. 
And his glory cannot be obscured by blurring the lines. But turning to the New Testament, because you might be thinking, well, that's Old Testament, Derek. That's Old Testament. Well, turning to the New Testament, Jesus, in his conversation in Matthew 19, in his conversation with the Pharisees about marriage, affirms this distinction. Verse 3, the Pharisees came up and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce anyone's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So here God, uh, Jesus is affirming what was established in the Old Testament. Namely, that God had created man and woman and thereby dignifies marriage and upholds marriage on that basis. In Israel, to blur the lines between the two genders by engaging in homosexuality or cross-dressing was to rebel against God's design and purpose in creating man and woman, same in their essence, but distinct in their personhood as man and woman, in their gender. Most foundationally, these practices blur the line between man and woman, and they obscure God's glory, which he intended to shine brightly between, be, uh, in, among this distinction of man and woman. The implication, now, now we're going to draw implications from these texts and apply them to our current cultural moment. The implication of these truths from Genesis and the New Testament is that biological sex and corresponding gender are given as a gift from God and subsequently recognized by us through normal observation and interaction. The first time a person's maleness or femaleness is recognized is when they are born. It's a boy or it's a girl, right? A person's sex or corresponding gender is not something assigned by us and by our own interpretation. This means, here's the implication, this means that we do not determine our biological sex and corresponding gender. We are created as gendered people, male or female. There's no such thing as a non-gender specific image bearer. And these differences will bear themselves out as we live in community with one another. Boys and girls are different, and wonderfully so. So glad we got boys and girls in our family. And men and women are different, and wonderfully so. I'm so glad it's not a world full of just guys, right? It's a gift. Each, each gender is a gift. The female gender is a gift. The male gender is a gift. Men and women are gifts to one another. Boys and girls, men and women are different. We look different. We think differently. We relate differently. We act differently, we talk differently, we bear different strengths and weaknesses, and so on. And this is a good and wholesome and wonderful and beautiful thing that God has created. However, we are presently confronted with the notion of gender identity and the notion of gender expression. Let me help us with a few definitions. Gender identity refers to a person's deepest sense of their gender. That's how it's defined today. The deepest sense of your gender is your gender identity. This is the innermost sense or feeling that you have about what gender you are. And it may or it may not correspond 
with your biological sex. Most typically, a person will identify as the opposite gender. If they are male, they'll identify as a female, or if they're female, they'll identify as a male. Although within the last few years, there's been a widening acceptance as gender as a spectrum so that a person may not be willing to identify as either a man or a woman, but something among a larger range of possibilities along this spectrum. For example, one website defines gender, uh, gender identity as this, quote, one's innermost concept of self as male, female, or a blend of both, or neither, how individuals perceive themselves and what they call themselves, one's gender identity can be the same or different from their sex assigned at birth. One's gender identity then is shown in their gender, gender expression, expression. It will be conveyed in their gender expression. Gender expression, again, just quoting from that same website, which I think is an accurate representation of how these things are being defined today. Quote, external appearance, that one's gender expression is, quote, the external appearance of one's gender identity, usually expressed through behavior, clothing, haircut, or voice, and which may or may not conform to socially defined behaviors and characteristics typically associated with being masculine or feminine. So your gender identity flows out into your gender expression in those kind of concrete ways. But this foundational definition of gender identity, as you can probably already see, reflects beliefs about human nature which are contrary to a Christian worldview and therefore contrary to reality. First thing we need to note is gender identity is defined solely on the basis of one's subjective sense of gender. This subjective sense is detached from their biological sex or what these definitions have called their sex assigned at birth. And that statement, sex assigned at birth, is itself a politically loaded statement because it implies that our biological sex, when it's recognized, does not necessarily reflect objective reality. All it reflects is your interpretation of reality, which itself throws into confusion the, our very basic capacity to even interpret reality at all. Language means something. So this, this statement, sex assigned at birth, is itself a politically loaded and biased statement. God has created us in such a way that we are not merely assigning something, we are recognizing something that's objectively there. Now, we'll see a little later this morning that a Christian worldview does account for this something called gender dysphoria. Okay, here's another definition. What is gender dysphoria? Gender dysphoria is the distress someone feels when they are not sure of their gender identity in relation to their biological sex. So you, you start developing a gender identity that seems more female when you are, in fact, biologically a male, and now you are the distress that that is causing you inwardly is what people have called gender dysphoria. A Christian worldview can account for this and does account for this. There are people who do believe inwardly they're a different gender than what their biological sex indicates. There are people who are simply dissatisfied with the gender that they are. And a Christian worldview accounts for these experiences. What I want us to see now Right now, however, is that in our contemporary setting, the transgender activists are arguing for a detachment of one's biological sex from one's gender identity. And we even saw this remarkably last week in that quote from Deanna Atkins when she said that our sense, our inward subjective sense of gender should be the controlling factor in determining whether or not we are male or female. 
But biblically speaking, we know from the uniform testimony of Scripture that one's gender identity is bound up inextricably with our biological sex. God made them male and female, and he intends for us to live according to our maleness or femaleness in our distinct roles and callings. In fact, I would venture to say that the entire structure of the Bible is dependent upon this very basic reality that we are male and female because our indistinct callings as men and women are given in the scripture throughout the scripture and we carry out our discipleship not as a a generic image bearer but as someone who's either a man or a woman in Christ. Just think of Proverbs 31, for example, that it describes the virtuous woman. Or think of Titus chapter 2, for example, that says very clearly that men, older men are to disciple younger men into what it, lo- what it looks like to be a godly young man. And women are to train the younger women into what it looks like to be a godly young woman. 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy how to interact with men in a particular way and how to interact with women in a particular way. Older men as fathers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Ephesians 5:22 through 23 is or 5:22 through 33 is all about how the man and the woman are to relate to one another and to God in the marriage very distinctly and differently. They have different roles and callings. So you wipe out the distinction between male and female and you wipe out the entire Bible. That's how significant this issue is, and probably exactly why it is such an issue today, such an explosive issue today. People recognize that it is significant. I think intuitively, but also because of what is at stake. Now, someone with some theological savvy might suggest, well, you know, Derek, the fall has occurred. I will concede. God created male and female. The fall has occurred. And so now the fall has so messed things up that it's possible that a, a woman is now uh, could inhabit a man's body or vice versa. That, 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 that could be possible because of the fall, because of sin, because of the curse. Um, let me just be very clear that that's not a possibility, biblically speaking. Nowhere in Scripture are we given the idea or any evidence that the fall has created this kind of problem. The fall has created all kinds of problems, there's no doubt. But this is not one of them. As, as I've already noted, the scripture simply assumes that our creation is male and a female, and our distinction as male and female is a fixed reality upon which you can build discipleship. So that idea of about, about the fall is simply not a reality. And we shouldn't and as we've already seen, Jesus himself affirms the, the reality that we are male and female. Jesus post-fall affirms that God made humans male and female and on this basis affirms the dignity of marriage. The Bible simply assumes that men are men and women are women. Let's be clear, the fall of humankind into sin and the subsequent curse, curse has not reordered the structure of creation so that a person's true gender is different from their biological sex. And I know there's questions already churning in your mind, so we're going to answer those questions. So just hold on. Rather, the introduction of sin into the world has caused confusion about gender relating to our biological sex. That's what the fall has caused. 
It's caused confusion and some other things, as we'll talk about in a moment. And here's, here's what's key. And I just want us to consider, as I'm reading these things, and probably some other things um, uh, that we'll study here in, in a little bit, I want us to consider Proverbs 30, verse 5. Just consider this passage. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. And so we've just discussed and looked at all these texts that indicate that we're made male or female. And you would expect that there would be some interesting things to come up in other areas that affirm this in our experience. So as an example, just taking science, science affirms these theological truths. And you would expect that to be the case because every word of God proves true. And it's not by coincidence that then he says he's a shield to, uh, to all those who take refuge in him. Because probably, if you're like me, you're feeling this transgender moment as a just sheer onslaught. And you're like, where do I go for truth? Here's where you go for the truth. And it's truth that will always be borne out as true. And here's, this is no exception. Science affirms these theological truths. Cosmetic changes on the body and the taking of certain hormones if you're a woman or certain hormones if you're a man or woman in order to transition to the other gender, they cannot, here's what's key, they cannot change you biologically at the deepest level. Science affirms this. Maleness or femaleness is tied up with our DNA and it pervades every aspect of our biology all the way down to the molecular level. And we would expect this because of what God has told us about his good design. But these biblical affirmations, and even this statement about what science affirms, may bring up for you this question of intersex. Maybe you've had these, this question has been just kind of come up as I've been making these statements. The word intersex describes a range of medical conditions where the human reproductive system has not developed in a normal fashion. The genitalia of a person at birth, therefore, may not be clearly male or female, and it may be difficult at that point initially for doctors and parents to know whether the child is male or female when they are first born. Now, I bring this issue up for two reasons. Number one, it's because we just affirmed very clearly, clearly that God made them male and female. How does a Christian worldview, how does the scripture account for these realities where it may be the case that, that it is difficult to determine one's biological sex at birth? So we need to address that. But second, it's important to deal with this issue because our current moment, you have transgender activists using this reality of intersex in order to argue for transgenderism. Here's the argument. Some people are born with genitalia that makes their biological sex and therefore their gender unclear. Similarly, some people are born, with, born transgender, which means their inward sense of gender does not match their anatomy. Besides this, the phenomenon of intersex indicates that gender isn't a binary between, uh, uh, between male and female, but is actually along a spectrum that people can locate themselves on. Let's address this connection between transgenderism and intersex. The most important observation that we must make about linking these two things is that it's simply a category confusion. Those who identify as transgender are usually not those whose biological sex is ambiguous. 
Rather, transgender people are those whose biological sex is clear, but who claim an inward sense of gendered identity that is different than their biological sex and therefore want to use, in some cases, they want to use medical intervention to change their biological sex to match their inward sense of gender. That's what transgenderism is. Often it's operating on the gender binary. People with intersex problems, however, have a physical situation that makes it initially difficult to determine their biological sex and therefore seek medical intervention in order to correct what is wrong physically. So you can see these are two different categories, but they're being blended for political expediency and to confuse you. What we need to notice is that transgenderism is actually built on the assumption of a gender binary where one's biological sex is rejected in exchange for another or the other. True intersex, situ intersex situations are where actual biological sex is not clear, but this does not itself prove that the gender binary is not true or that God's word is untrue when it says he created them male and female. Rather, these instances of intersex affirm the reality that we live, here it is, we live in a fallen world where in some cases our bodies don't always form in the womb the way they were supposed to. That's how scripture answers that issue. The fall has messed a lot of things up and sometimes it messes up our development in the womb. But here's, here's something really key with this whole issue, okay? We need to understand that the cases where the determination of one's biological sex is not readily apparent, these cases are exceedingly rare. Exceedingly rare. The person whose genitalia is unclear is either a male or a female, and doctors are often able to determine through other means what the child is. Disorders in sex development, or DSDs as they're called, are variations within males and females, so surgery and other treatments are used to create, create, uh, correct what didn't form properly, not create something different than what the child actually is. Boy, this is just where we need very clear thinking in an issue that is being loaded politically in order to confuse. These exceedingly rare DSDs cannot be used to overturn the truth that a person is either male or female. They may need to be treated by a case-by-case -case basis. And the underlying truth that is proclaimed by Scripture and affirmed by good science is that, and that must be kept in place during the investigation of these case-by-case -case cases, is that each individual case the person is either male or female. That's the underlying structure in the investigation that you have to hold to. And it's affirmed by scripture and it's affirmed by legitimate science. The reality for, that we know from scripture and is affirmed again and again in the world is that you are either a male, female, uh, male image bearer or a female image bearer. That is affirmed all throughout scripture. And it's a good thing. Women and girls have inherent dignity, inherent value that is to be respected and honored. Men have inherent dignity and value and are therefore worthy of respect and honor. Both genders have wonderful blessing and gifts to contribute to life in this world, and these differences should be celebrated and upheld. But as we saw in our last message, an ideology that is grounded in the creation rather than in the creator will eventually lower our view of human life and actually end up harming human life. The greatest of all ironies. You deify the creature, you actually harm the creature. Can you believe that? 
Underlying the transgender moment is the assumption, a, a, very, a very clear assumption about human nature. There's an anthropological component to the transgender ideology, and we can't miss it. It's the twin assumptions that human nature is not the direct creation of God, and that my personal reason and feelings are the arbiter of truth. In other words, the major claim of the transgender movement, movement is that people are who they claim to be. That is the major claim. That has everything to do with our human nature, right? As we saw, it's not something that I claim. It's something that I have received from God himself as my creator. But if you remove God and his word from the picture, and if you remove God's good, purposeful design of man and woman from the picture, and there's no longer a fixed structure of maleness or femaleness or a specific purpose for the distinction. So if you just wipe God's creation and God's clear distinction and purpose for the distinction out of your worldview, then what happens? The divine design is removed, purpose is removed, and now you can bend your personhood, including your gender, however you want to. Only for so long. You can locate yourself on a gender spectrum. You can detach your gender identity from your biological sex. But that doesn't lead to greater joy and freedom in life. Remember what we noted last week. A crisis worldview leads to the destruction of the human person. That's Romans 1, 18 through 32. I mentioned just, just in passing last week that there's an extremely sad peer-reviewed study that was conducted in Sweden from 1973 to 2003. Maybe you're familiar with it already. But what it did show is that there are a much higher suicide and suicide attempt rate as, as well as a much higher case of psychiatric problems for those who had participated in sex reassignment surgery. Quoting the study, says persons quote persons with transsexualism after trans or after sex reassignment have considerably higher risk for mortality suicidal behavior and psychiatric morbidity than the general population now this study didn't prove per se that the sex change surgery is the direct cause of the significant uptick in suicides and psychiatric cases we need to read things carefully here, but it does show at the very least that the operations didn't solve the deeper underlying issues, did it? Did they? They didn't solve those deeper problems that people with gender dysphoria are experiencing, but the popular media loves to parade the stories of people who have what they would call a successful gender transition. It's, it's all you see today, and just as a side, one of the things that's coming up is that it's, it, those who are against this wholesale um, uh, approach to seeing all these uh, stories of transgender transitions as successful is, is the argument, well, we're only seeing what it's like within the last two to five years for these people. We're not seeing what it's like for them to live like this for 30 years. What is it going to be like 30 years from now for them? But nevertheless, the, the, the media likes to tell us over and over with these stories of how successful they've been and how they've relieved the dysphoria and so on. They don't like to bring up stories of people who, when struggling with gender dysphoria, made the transition only later to regret it. And the, the Laura Parrish story is one example of many. Let me just tell it to you. This is straight out of World Magazine. Quote, at age 25, Laura Perry, Perry met with a therapist three times to obtain a note saying she had gender dysphoria. 
Before diagnosing her, the therapist suggested Perry's strained relationship with her mother could have something to do with her desire to be a man. Perry scoffed. With the note, she met with a doctor who prescribed testosterone. That night, she injected the hormone into her thigh muscle. It was the start of a nine years involving monthly hormone injections, a double mastectomy, a full hysterectomy, but no reprieve from her depression or dysphoria. Perry detransitioned in, 2000, detransitioned in 2016, but lives with scars, missing body parts, and cognitive and muscle problems she attributes to testosterone. She still shaves her face every day. Perry now believes the therapist was right. Her dysphoria was rooted in deep familial wounds and wishes someone had stopped her from treatments and surgeries. Perry's scars and regret are lost in today's transgender moment, intent on making access to cross-sex hormones and sex change surgeries easier, cheaper, and quicker. And there are a lot of stories like this out there on YouTube, in articles, in blogs, but they are marginalized by mainstream media and transgender activists. Why? Because among the people who transition from one gender to another and then back again, something called detransition, there are common experiences and concerns with these people that undermine transgender ideology. So here are three common experiences and concerns that these detransitioners bring up. Number one is this. A number of people who have detransitioned say that their pursuit of changing genders and, uh, and outward physical characteristics didn't solve their deepest problems. That's a common characteristic. One woman on YouTube says, quote, transitioning didn't solve the problems, it just kind of shoved them to the side. Then she makes this remarkably theologically and philosophically, philosophically astute statement. She says, quote, just because you're transitioning, it doesn't mean you're creating another person. She, she knew that. She understood that. Another girl on YouTube, when asked in an interview to describe transitioning in one word, she says escapism. That's how she described it. And this is after her detransition. And why is this the case? Why do these changes, these incredibly uh, remarkable changes, not solve the deep inward problem? Well, biblically speaking, we know that the deepest issue is alienation from God. Colossians 1.21 says, talking to those who have been converted, when you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is the problem? The deepest issue is that you're alienated from God. But as we'll see in a moment, Another reason why these remarkable physical changes don't do anything is because there are other factors that you can identify that are leading people to make these kinds of life-changing decisions. We'll talk about that in a moment. Common experience and concern number two is this, and we just heard it from Laura Perry, so I won't read any more on this, but the, the, some detransitioners feel slighted by trans gender activists and doctors because it seemed like transitioning was the only way to solve their dysphoria. And so they feel pressured into participating in life-altering surgeries. They feel pressured. They, have, they feel like they have no choice. They have no place to turn. This, I must do this. And so when they finally get some things in order and then detransition, they, they're upset, actually, that, that it made it seem from from others that this is their only option. What a tragic, tragic thing that is. 
And then finally, common experience and concern number three, many of those who are transgender have suffered previous childhood trauma or are confused about their sexuality or sexual attraction, or they have misgivings about the way society portrays their gender. In other words, there are clear, external, and identifiable factors that lead a person to become confused about their gender identity. This undermines one of the major planks in transgender ideology, namely that one's inward sense of gender is fixed and unchanging. There's a man named Walt Heyer. He has a remarkable story, a story of salvation. Let me just tell it to you. He's a man who transitioned to a woman in his 40s. And then he detransitioned back to a man in his 50s after he came to Jesus Christ. And this is how he explains it. He says, Jesus Christ redeemed and restored my life. And then he started a website called sexchangeregret.com to find out if he was the only person who had regret over his transition. And he came to find out within 12 months that 350,000 people had visited his website. And he realized then that he was onto something. He wasn't the only person who had regret. And one of the things that he says in, on this website, in this video interview, is his concern is that regret doesn't happen until about the 10 to 15 year mark in, in, in many cases. And his concern is that we're just looking at people transitioning, we're looking at their life after two to five years, and we're not considering the long-term effect of this on their lives. What about after 20 to 30 years? See, what we're being shown right now are uh, uh, paraded across popular media channels are people who have transitioned, transitioned most recently and that, that things are good and their transition was successful. He said that his gender dysphoria started with early childhood abuse and now he oversees a multi-support network of detransitioners who, he says, quote, every single one of them had unwanted pain caused by sexual abuse, deep trauma, mental disorders, horrible loss, or terrible family circumstances. And he makes another statement. He says, quote, the world of regretters that I see and support is vastly different from the world of transition advocates, those in a relentless pursuit to convince the world that being transgender is the ultimate of all genders. Now, I share a few of these stories to again affirm to you that we see the truth of Scripture being played out before our very eyes. Making these changes, making these transitions that go against the way God has created us, they're not good for the human. They're not good for the image bearer. They harm the image bearer. What God has created in our maleness and femaleness is very good. But we have, as sinners, we have disordered or otherwise sinful desires and we embrace worldviews, we're susceptible to worldviews that are grounded in the creation rather than our creator. We worship idols, we worship ourselves and these worldviews, and these idols and these worldviews end up confusing us and ultimately harm us rather than bringing us clarity and help. But see, Scripture must be our final authority. That's why we begin with Scripture. That's why we're going to end with Scripture. Scripture must be our final authority because... The, the stories that I just read to you, they, each one, are being questioned and marginalized and largely ignored by transgender activists. In fact, one of the claim, here, this is the claim, is that these kinds of stories, the claim made by transgender activists is that these kinds of stories, the one I just read about the regret that people have, are from people who weren't really transgender to begin with. 
That's called special pleading in terms of logical fallacies. A worldview that is grounded in the creation rather than the creator will lead, as we've seen in these cases, to the destruction of the creation. In Laura's case, her body was mutilated in order to help her ease her dysphoria and depression, but it didn't work. Why? Why didn't it work? A Christian worldview answers this question as well. Why do some men want to become women? Why do some women want to become women? Where do these desires originate? Why do these desires plague people in such a way that they're willing to go under the knife to change their bodies? It's not a laughing matter. The Christian worldview doesn't just tell us that it's against God's good design as a man to want to be a woman or a woman to be a man. Just as importantly, it tells us why people aren't satisfied with their genders and want to change. Or, like we said in the, saw in the intersex issue, why our bodies might not form the way they should in the womb. A Christian worldview answers this, answers it very explicitly and clearly. The moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their whole persons were infected with sin. And life would never be the change for, or never be the same for them or their progeny. Their depravity was pervasive. It filled out every part of who they were. Nothing would be left unturned in terms of their sinfulness. And so, therefore, since the fall, our minds and our hearts have not functioned the way they're made to function. Genesis 6, 5. This is, this is after creation. This is after the fall. Several generations later, this is how God assesses the world. Genesis 6, 5. The, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We've, we are messed up on the inside and our bodies decay and die on the outside. And then not only that, but God leveled a curse against the creation as a perpetual reminder to us as a sinfulness, uh, of the sinfulness of sin. We now exist in a fallen, cursed environment with sinful hearts and bodies that are affected by death and decay. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? It's sick. See, the Christian worldview tells us that there's something fundamentally wrong with us, doesn't it? Something fun. People, everybody knows it. They just can't put their finger on it. There's something wrong with the world and with us. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your neighbor. Some people are not satisfied with who they are as male and female because our hearts and mind are corrupted and unable to think and feel the way that we're supposed to think and feel. So there should be compassion on our part. There should also be clear truth-telling. We follow our feelings instead of the truth so we are easily led away into harmful activities and lifestyles. We, we, we're seeing that, right? Isn't that what we're seeing? Some people are born with bodies that are not fully formed. The fall and the curse that God leveled on our creation as a result of our sin against him has deep and lasting impact on our life in this world, this side of eternity. It's just something we have to reckon with. See, a Christian worldview is robust enough to include all of this and account for all of life, isn't it? Therefore, it's the only worldview can, that can offer hope. See, what's, what's important is not only that we are sinful and that our bodies are decaying, but 
We are now, because we are sinful, susceptible to the destructive yet alluring worldviews that are grounded in the creature rather than grounded in the creator. We are susceptible to those worldviews. And we also have a dominant cultural narrative that, that's, that provides no basis for this, for these things. Namely, the dignity of human life, or the goodness of maleness or femaleness, or helping us understand the way life is the way it is. And it, this dominant worldview doesn't provide true hope for lasting change, despite our messed up situation. So if you have a cultural narrative that's broadly naturalistic and rejects a Christian worldview, and when you exist in a culture that cannot give women the basis for understanding healthy femininity, and it cannot give the men the basis for understanding healthy masculinity, and when your worldview doesn't provide you with a framework for understanding why life on this earth is so messed up, or if you have a worldview that doesn't provide you with hope for the future, it won't be long before you start questioning even the most foundational aspects of your personhood. It's the air we breathe. So we should expect the disease to infect us and grow. That's what's happening. Surveys are showing that adolescent gender dysphoria is increasing exponentially. Why is that? It's just, is it because more people are transgender? It's not at all. It's because we are imbibing a particular cultural narrative that is grounded in the creation rather than the creator. That coupled with our own sin and our own confusion and our own alienation from God and our confusion about what it means to be a man or a woman and use our bodies for the glory of God, it shouldn't surprise us that there's such a massive uptick in young people who are claiming to be, to be experiencing gender dysphoria. A Christian worldview tells us why we were created, tells us the purpose of why we were created, tells us who we are, tells us about our nature. We're material and immaterial. We're body and soul. Our physical body is a gift from God to be used for his glory in every way. Our gender corresponds with our biological sex, yet we are fallen and sinful and our minds don't function the way they're supposed to. They don't function the way they're created to function. And we live in a world where lie after lie is perpetuated about who we are and what's wrong with us. But God sent his son personally into this environment, into this fallen environment. He took on a genuine human nature. He fulfilled all of God's requirements for human beings. In our place, he fulfilled all righteousness. In our place, he bore the punishment for all of our sin. 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you of a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Also, all for you to be forgiven of your sins. And not only forgiven of your sins, but then to enter into a life, a new life of being transformed in our minds, slowly but surely being changed and transformed to think and to feel the way they were created to think and to feel. Salvation is holistic. It fills out the whole person. And not only that, but God in his grace then gives you something a very word, a written word, so that you can navigate through the lies that this world continually throws at you. Jesus said, your word, referring to the word of God, referring to his father's word, your word is truth. 
That's what people need. They need truth. You know, I was reading of this story of a young lady who was drawn to a doctor because this doctor was very kind to them. And very kind and welcoming and in, in leading them in to make a transitional surgery. But not speaking the truth to them. And I just thought, you know, I'd rather have someone who's a little rough around the edges, maybe a little harsh, but who told me the truth than someone who is kind and accepting, but that leads me on the path of destruction. We need truth. Your neighbor needs truth. They need it spoken clearly. God created you male or he created you female. And the reason why you are struggling is because you're alienated from the creator who has given his son for sinners. And there's no sin that he won't forgive if you come to him in repentance and faith. So if you're here today or you're listening in or maybe you're struggling with these things, the deepest issue you have isn't even your gender dysphoria. It's that you're alienated from your creator and he has given himself to you. Will you not come to him and be changed and renewed? Those who reject God's offer of salvation, there will be no relief from the burden of sin and there won't be any wholeness of personhood, you will be locked in everlasting sin and everlasting confusion. The confusion that you experience now will only increase for all eternity because you refused to turn to God for forgiveness and renewal. He offers it to you freely, and He offers it to you now. He offers it to you abundantly. He is freely offering you the gift of salvation to be changed and renewed and forgiven. So let's end this by leaving with two points of application. My encouragement to you would be to live according to the truth. Live according to the truth. See, it's come clear to me through my research on this topic that there, people are simply confused about the way this culture portrays manhood and womanhood. Where else can they go to find out what manhood and womanhood is meant to look like if it's not the church? They're confused. The world is confusing. All different various kinds of conflicting messages about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. People are confused. So we as Christians need to take this, this calling to be a man according to Scripture or be a woman according to Scripture seriously and to walk in the joy of Christian manhood and Christian womanhood. But we can't just let this be at the intellectual level. These things need to bear themselves out in our lives. But also I would encourage you to speak the truth. Not only live according to the truth, but speak the truth. People need to hear the truth of the gospel. They need to hear the truth of the word of God. They need to hear the truth of how God has created them. So that they might truly turn and be changed for their everlasting joy. Let's not be ashamed to speak the truth. I'll be honest with you. These past two weeks has been some of the hardest preparation of my entire pastoral career. Why? Because it'd just be a lot easier to just not say anything. Just, it'd just be a lot easier. But we have to. We have to speak the truth. Not because we want to be belligerent, but because we want to see people saved and to grow into the image of Jesus Christ. So let's do that. Let everything we do be done in love. Let's speak the truth to our neighbor. Let's live it out here at CBC, one with the other. 
showing grace and extending grace and forgiveness and kindness to one another, speaking the truth to one another in love, and walk in God's goodness, in His creation of male and female. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these last two weeks of just being able to dive into this topic, a challenging topic, no doubt. But God, I just pray that your people would be edified. I pray that you would call sinners to yourself. God, I just plead that we would hear more more testimonies of those who have gone through the horrendous transition to then be come to you and to be changed, renewed, and to come to Christ. God, would you just let us hear more of those testimonies? Would you just save more people and those who are struggling with the worst kinds of sins, God, would you open their eyes to see that Christ has paid it all? Every sin, no matter how horrid, has been paid for those who believe. That, it's just mind-blowing. And God, I pray that we would be bearers of this good news, truth speakers with broken hearts, but willing to speak the truth. God, would you work that miracle among us as a church body? And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.